and welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. Our guest today is Dr. Suzanne Hoekstra. Dr. Hoekstra is a surgeon with special training in breast surgery. She practices at Breast Care Specialists of Maine, which is a division of Mercy Hospital in Portland, Maine. Today we're talking about the best ways to screen for breast cancer because it's confusing. Some recommendations say a mammogram every year, others one every two years, and the recommended ages also vary. So, we are going to ask Dr. Hoekstra to shed some light on this extremely important topic. Hello, Dr. Hoekstra. Hello. And thank you. So, can you straighten us out a bit on breast cancer screening guidelines? When are women supposed to get their first mammogram? Well, this is certainly a controversial area right now. Over the last uh, 10 years or so, people have really looked at this and changed some of our tried and true guidelines. And the basis for this is primarily because uh, when they looked at women and the benefit of mammogram, they started wondering if it was really helpful to have women that were younger getting mammograms and also what the role of was having it every year versus every other year. And the most controversial guidelines initially were in 2009, where the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force came out with guidelines suggesting that maybe women did not really need mammograms until age 50. And this was based on some mathematical models where they thought the benefits were too small for women between ages 40 and 50 to really warrant mammogram. And the other issue was a false positive rate. In other words, women that were younger might have things that show up on mammogram that weren't actually important and would require extra testing and anxiety, which wouldn't amount to them being diagnosed with cancer. However, um, later guidelines disputed that and um, changed that a little bit, most recently being the American College of, um, sorry, the American Cancer Society guidelines, um, which were just about a year ago, where they suggested that maybe women could start between 45 and 55 instead of just at 50. But the bottom line is really that women are diagnosed with breast cancer at a pretty high rate starting at age 40 onward. And so um, even though it may seem like for every cancer that's found, there are a lot of women that don't have cancer that have to get screened, it still actually does improve survival. And so most of the organizations such as the NCCN and the American Society of Breast Surgeons and some of the others still definitely go with the age 40 uh, mammography because it can certainly make different a difference in women at 40. Now, what about women who have really dense breasts. How reliable is mammography in detecting tumors that might be hiding in that dense tissue? Well, it certainly can miss cancers, and that's in women of all age groups. So I want to make sure that it's clarified to say that women can have very dense breasts even at age 70 or even 80. So uh, that doesn't necessarily change as a woman gets older, so this would be something that could be across the board. Um, but 
basically when a woman has a mammogram, all of the breast tissue is uh, compressed together and then a two-dimensional picture is taken. And with tomosynthesis or 3D mammography, they're trying to take pictures layer by layer through that tissue so that you get a better idea of what's hiding between the layers. And it has been shown to pick up things at a higher rate because of this. Um, the cancer detection rates are really good with tomosynthesis, and that is in any women. The interesting thing that also was reported, however, is that tomosynthesis is equally increasing the rates of cancer detection in women that don't have dense breasts. So it's actually not just for women with dense breasts, it's going to be helpful for women with all types of breast tissue. So this is a new kind of mammography, it's three-dimensional? Yes, it is still a mammogram, but it can look at the tissue in more of a three-dimensional way, uh, which is something we did not have before. Huh, it's all computerized. I remember back in the day, I was an x-ray tech and we used film and then, um, I can't remember how many years ago, they started using the computer. Everything was digital, and that really improved how you could see things. So this is e even a step above that. It is. It is still digital. It is still computerized. But now it's um, a little bit more three-dimensional or tomosynthesis, which has to do with the idea of going layer by layer through the tissue. It's still radiation. It is still radiation. And how available is it? Well, it's quite available throughout the country. It is not very available yet in the state of Maine. Maine is one of the last states to really adopt this. Um, but it's going to be more in Maine. If you look at a map of the United States, um, the eastern half of the United States has the most amount of tomosynthesis and then the western coast and the middle of the U.S. does not actually have a lot of it available yet and also in the state of Maine. So it's coming but uh, it's just not there yet and a lot of that has to do with money. Um, it's an expensive technology and also radiologists have to be trained to read it and insurances were not covering it up until just recently. So that's another factor that's now, uh, ever since last year, Medicare started covering it, so other insurances will get on board with that. Do they just cover it for certain women, women who are known to have dense breasts or high-risk women, or does insurance cover it across the board as a screening tool? They'll actually cover it across the board as a screening tool if they cover it. And that's really the question is, do they cover it? So right now in the U.S., only about... 20% of the mammography units are tomosynthesis. It's just that most states do have units. And Maine does have a couple units, but again, it's very limited. So we're working on changing that, and it's certainly on our budget to purchase one. And so at this point, it's up to a woman who knows about it to ask her provider if it's available. Yes. What other options are there? I know there's ultrasound. When might you do an ultrasound? So ultrasound is done in more of a focused fashion, such as if a woman feels a lump or has something that shows up on a mammogram, then an ultrasound will be performed to get more information about that area. However, it can also be used for women with denser breast tissue where mammogram is not as sensitive. And in that setting, 
whole breast ultrasound can be done so it's not focused on a specific area of the breast. The problem with this technology is it's um, technician dependent and also is something that insurances are not required to cover for a lot of women right now so it becomes expensive to get done. There's also a concern that ultrasound may not be changing survival because of false positive rate. In other words, it may find something, but it's not cancer. And then you back to the same argument that was made about mammogram finding too many things that turned out to be nothing. Is it really worth doing? So it's a debate and a case by case basis. Of course, the individual woman who's in that situation, do you find that most women really want to go that extra step to make sure? A lot of women would like to if they have dense breasts, yes. Uh, but a lot of women that don't have dense breasts or aren't as concerned don't. Um, interestingly, about 40% of the population has dense breasts, so that's a large number. So I can't say that 40% of my patients are having ultrasound, um, but a percentage are for sure. And when you have dense breasts, it, it means that it's hard to actually feel anything. You know, we were always taught to do breast self-exams and also to get the clinical exams from our providers, but how can you really feel anything if you've got dense breasts? Well, the term dense breasts is actually a mammographic term, so um, it's not based on how the breasts feel, it's based on how they look on a mammogram. And it refers to an analogy I'd like to make where if you have a sky that has a lot of clouds in it, it gets hard to pick out individual clouds sometimes, and the individual clouds could be a tumor, but it's really hard to tell. Um, women that have no clouds in their sky don't have dense breasts, and it's very easy for a mammogram to pick up one isolated cloud. Um, but the way that the breasts feel on exam is a whole different issue. So a woman could have a very dense mammogram, but a very easy self-exam where the breasts are not lumpy in texture at all, and it'd be very easy to, to find something. So it's, it's a bit of a disconnect there. But women should definitely examine themselves, and that was another one of the controversial recommendations on screening. Approximately 9% uh, of cancers are found only on physical examination. And so if we're thinking about limiting mammograms in certain populations or um, telling women not to do breast self-exams, we have to wonder how is it that they'll determine whether they have a breast cancer. So I think it's uh, important to do an exam. And in my experience, women that do regularly check themselves are much more able to identify difference than women that never check themselves. So is that the key to doing the breast self exams is you get to know what you feel like and so you're more apt to find out when something's a little bit different or are you actually trying to feel certain textures? You're trying to feel a change. So if you're used to the way that your breast tissue feels, the peaks and valleys within the areas of your breast, and then something has changed, you're more apt to notice it if you're checking yourself often. And the recommendation is monthly, but even for women that are checking every two or three months regularly year after year, they're able to find changes. And it's not just a, a change in the way it feels, but sometimes a change in the way it looks. So part of the exam is looking in the mirror, looking for any dimpling, um, looking at the nipples, seeing if there's any um, crustiness or 
other skin changes to the nipple. And do you also feel under your armpit? Yes, you should feel under your armpit. And this is to look for enlarged lymph nodes. And also breast tissue can extend up toward the armpit. And it's best to do that with your arm down instead of up. So the examination of the breast tissue itself is with your arm above your head and usually lying down but the examination under the arm should be with your arm down. And is there any particular time of month that you should do it? Well, for women that are still having their period, their breasts are gonna be the least sensitive and the least nodular in texture at the end of their period. So right when they're finishing their period. For women that don't have a period, they should mark on their calendar a day that they can remember, first of the month, 15th of the month, whatever is meaningful to them. Okay, I want to get back to mammograms for just a second. They're still considered the gold standard? They are, and they have been uh, reliably shown to improve survival from a breast cancer diagnosis um, by 20%. And that's the only test that has been shown to improve survival. Okay, we're going to get into some of the other tests in a minute. but. We've been talking about women with an average risk of breast cancer. Let's talk for a moment about women who are at high risk. First of all, can you tell us some things that put a woman at high risk for breast cancer? Well, first and foremost, it would be uh, a known genetic predisposition to breast cancer, uh, such as the BRCA genes. And these can place a woman at risk up to 90% in their lifetime of getting breast cancer, which is pretty high. Other reasons are family history, um, personal history of breast cancer, especially at a younger age. Also a biopsy showing things like LCIS and atypical hyperplasia, and a history of radiation to the chest for someone, for example, for Hodgkin's disease when they were younger. So I read that the majority of breast cancer cases were sporadic, that there was no or there is no direct family history of the disease. Is that correct? That's true. There are risk factors such as uh, taking hormones, having a family history, having had a biopsy, um, not breastfeeding, having had children late, but actually we don't know which one of those things might have triggered it in a certain individual or if any of them did. And we know that the risk for developing breast cancer for all women increases as we age. Yes. But breast cancer does occur in younger women, and I'm wondering if there are any specific types or patterns that you're more likely to see in a younger woman? Not necessarily. From my experience, any type of breast cancer can happen in any age. There were some preconceived notions in the past about certain types, but actually, in my experience, that hasn't panned out. Because I had read that in younger women, breast cancer can be more aggressive. Um, that's not necessarily true in a stage-by-stage basis, for example, stage one in a young woman versus stage one in an older woman, they can behave exactly the same. Can you describe what stage one is compared to stage four? That's the highest stage? Yeah, so stage one breast cancer would be a relatively small breast cancer, less than two centimeters in size. So that's about two thirds of an inch or less. Uh, and also one that has not spread at all into the lymph nodes. 
whereas stage four on the other end of the spectrum would be a breast cancer that has spread beyond the breast and the lymph nodes into the other organs, such as the liver, lungs, bone, and so on. Everything before stage four would be considered curable, even if it's stage three, it's curable. But once it's stage four, it's treatable, but not curable. And there's a stage zero. Stage zero is in situ carcinoma, which means it has not yet gained the ability to spread uh, beyond its localized area within the breast tissue. Uh, once it breaks through a certain layer of tissue, it becomes invasive and then it has the potential to spread. So stage zero uh, is highly curable and survivable because it doesn't spread and it doesn't become life-threatening. But what we do know is for certain stage zero cancers, they can grow into a stage one, two, or three, or so on if untreated. We're still not very good at knowing which people with stage zero are going to fall into those categories, but we have some ideas about who they might be uh, in terms of recommending treatment. And are we picking up more stage zeros because of improvements in technology? Yeah, so the stage of breast cancer has improved. In other words, what we're finding on staging has improved with the institution of digital mammogram in particular when that first came out. And we're going to do another podcast on that whole subject of stage zero breast cancer. I think it needs to have a long conversation to help us understand what that means. But for now, um, let's get back to if you're a woman who's at high risk, what should those women be doing for screening? So women that are at high risk, and high risk is actually defined by a 20% or more lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. The general population is somewhere around 11 to 12% risk. So this is people that are double or more the general population risk. And usually we talk to them about doing MRI screening in addition to the mammogram. And this is often done twice a year, once with the mammogram, once with the MRI. Sometimes it's spread out to a longer interval, but generally MRI is always going to be part of it. But it's only under certain circumstances then that you would order an MRI. Yeah, it is not for the general population. I know some women will want me to ask this. Will we ever reach the point where we won't need to go in and have our breasts squeezed between those two plates? I don't see that coming down the line. When you have an MRI, that doesn't happen, correct? Correct. When you have an MRI, um, the breast tissue is not squeezed. And you were you talked about it a little bit a few minutes ago, but it's necessary because... Um, the compression, what we'll call compression or the squeezing, is necessary because the tissue, if it's too spread out with the mammogram technology, the densities that we're looking for don't stand out enough. There's not enough contrast if the tissue isn't compressed together. Now, what about thermography? I understand that it doesn't use radiation, but it measures the temperature of the skin on the surface of the breast. So what information can you get from knowing the temperature? Well, it's based on the theory that cancer cells are more active and that thus the temperature would be raised in certain parts of the breast that were at risk for having a cancer. 
The problem is I've, I've not seen enough accuracy with it. I've seen women that had an abnormal thermogram come in for additional tests, such as an ultrasound or mammogram, and we've been unable to find anything. Flip side is I've seen women who had a known breast cancer, maybe a lump that could be felt, get a thermogram that was normal. So I haven't seen enough accuracy to make me uh, feel like it's gonna be helpful in detecting cancer or in reassuring somebody they don't have cancer. From what I've read, it might be able to spot issues on a cellular level? That's one of the claims. Um, cells are very, very tiny and so, um, a thermogram image is a broader image and um, would be hard to pick up any individual cells on the images. So what I've read is that when you have cancer cells and they're multiplying and dividing, that blood flow increases. And so that's why the skin temperature goes up. And that's what you might be able to see on a thermogram. Well, and theoretically it makes sense, but practically uh, it hasn't really played out. Do you think that it has any role to play at all for women who perhaps would prefer not to have radiation? No. Do you see a role for it in conjunction with mammography? Not as an alternative, but as an adjunct. I don't think so. If a woman didn't want to have mammography because of concerns about that procedure, a better test and alternative would probably be ultrasound. Now, what about men? Although it's only a small percentage, men do get breast cancer. How many men do you see? It's about 1%, so, you know, once or twice a year maybe. It's not common. I know we don't understand or we don't know what causes breast cancer in the first place. Do we know anything about men? Well, if a man gets diagnosed with breast cancer, we definitely look into the genetic role because they're much more likely to have a genetic predisposition to having gotten the cancer. However, um, beyond that, we can't really say in men either why they get it. I mean, they do have breast tissue just like women and potentially it can turn into cancer. How do they get screened? Do they have mammograms or is there something else that you have to do for them? Men don't have mammograms. What men should do is self-exam and this tends to work better in men than in women because men don't have as much breast tissue as women so it's easier for them to check themselves but if they notice a lump they should come in and I do see men with lumps from time to time and we do a mammogram sometimes, ultrasound, figure out what's going on, sometimes a biopsy. Um, for men that have already had breast cancer, we still do not recommend regular mammograms, but they do come in for exams. And you mentioned they can carry a mutated breast cancer gene that got passed on probably from their mother, an aunt, or? It can be carried by the males. So any gene that a person gets can be from either parent and there's a 50-50 chance. So let's say, for example, that my father had the breast cancer gene but never got breast cancer. He could still pass it to me, 50-50 chance, and I could get breast cancer. So we've always been taught, or I've always been taught, to look at the mother's side, but this tells me that we should know about our father's history, too. Yeah, we need to look at both sides of the family, and it includes first, second, and third degree relatives. So um, that goes up into your cousins, even. And so um, part of the questioning is, 
who are the people in your family that had what we now call hereditary cancers, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, melanoma, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, uterine cancer, just to name a few. Which leads me into another question I wanted to ask you is, when do you recommend genetic testing for breast cancer? Well. I would love it if every woman that was diagnosed could get it. However, insurance companies don't see it that way. So um, anybody that's under the age of 50 at diagnosis, anybody that's under 60 with a specific type called triple negative breast cancer, anybody that has one or two relatives um, with breast cancer on the same side of the family, particularly if those uh, relatives were under the age of 50. And also, if there are other associated cancers, such as ovarian cancer, they should be tested. And when someone has genetic testing for breast cancer, it does include testing for lots of different genes, not just the BRCA genes, correct? Right. Uh, there are a lot of panel testing situations available now from different companies and most commonly they include approximately 25 different genes that are known to be associated with different family cancer syndromes and predispositions. So in the past we only checked for BRCA genes which primarily was breast and ovarian cancer risk but now there are other genes for example something called check two, which includes a risk for colon cancer, and that's not something we previously were concerned about in the years when we were only checking for BRCA. We've come a long way. Yes. And we still have so far to go. Yes. So we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I had? I cannot think of anything. Well, I have a personal question. Okay. So what made you decide to become a breast cancer specialist? Well, as trite as it sounds, I really do feel like I can help the most women doing this, and I really enjoy it. I really enjoy helping them, getting them through it, getting them on the other side, being a survivor. Well, speaking from personal experience, you do a wonderful job. Um, I didn't mention it here today, but um, Dr. Hoekstra treated me for stage zero breast cancer two years ago, DCIS, and we are going to talk about that in another yet-to-be-announced podcast. I think we can wrap it up for now. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Hoekstra, for taking the time to speak with us and to try to enlighten us a little bit more about how to screen for breast cancer, who's at risk. Well, thank you for having me. If anybody has any questions, I will tell them how to get in touch with us. Thank you all for listening to the Catching Health Podcast. If you do have any questions or suggestions for future topics, you can send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Catching Health. And Catching Health is also on Facebook. And for more health reporting that makes a difference, please check out my blog at catchinghealth.com. Thank you.